0: from Integral Life. Welcome to Everyone Is Right.
1: I think, you know, one interesting thing to say is that the idea of conscious evolution and evolution leading to something like the Amiga Point or global consciousness has been totally outside orthodox evolutionary biology and kept alive by folks like you and dating all the way back to uh, Pierre Thielhard de Chardin, right. his book, The Phenomenon of Man. And I describe my book as updating the phenomenon of man. Right. So I see this in some ways as mainstream evolutionary biology catching up to the vision of spiritually oriented people such as yourself.
0: David Sloan Wilson is a SUNY Distinguished Professor of Biology and Anthropology. And he's widely known for his fundamental contributions to evolutionary science and for explaining evolution to the general public. Listen as David talks to Ken Wilber about his recent book, This View of Life, Completing the Darwinian Revolution, In this fascinating discussion of conscious, cultural, and biological evolution, and how we can use the fundamental patterns running through all three in order to create a more adaptable and sustainable future. All right. Well, David, my friend, we are here to discuss your recent book, This View of Life, and it's tantalizingly uh, subtitled Completing the Darwinian Revolution. And the idea basically on that part is that for a fair amount of time, evolutionary theory became what you refer to as gene-centered. It became a little bit too focused on just the genetic sexual forms of heredity that Darwin's theory basically just demands variation, selection, and some sort of, of inheritance. But that inheritance doesn't have to be simply genetic. We can also have things like psychological evolution and cultural evolution. So you say, once we appreciate that evolution goes beyond genetic evolution, then we can begin to use our toolkit to understand the fast-paced cultural changes swirling all around us and even within us as an actively evolving entities in our own right. So one of your main points is that in addition to genetic evolution, there are also cultural evolution, psychological evolution, and because aspects of all of these involve choices, there really is what you call conscious evolution. That's an incredibly important idea, especially coming from a scientist of your repute.
1: Well, I think that, um, thank you, first of all, and you rendered it very well, so I don't need to say anything, you're, you're doing it <laughs> all by yourself, and, um, I think, you know, one interesting thing to say is that the idea of conscious evolution and evolution leading to something like the Amiga Point or global consciousness has been totally outside orthodox evolutionary biology and kept alive by folks like you. And dating all the way back to uh, Pierre Thielhard de Chardin. Right. His book, The Phenomenon of Man. And I describe my book as updating the phenomenon of man. Right. So I see this in some ways as mainstream evolutionary biology catching up to the vision of spiritually oriented people such as yourself. And that doesn't mean that this is necessarily going to be a 100% love fest because I think there's there's adjustments that need to be made. But if you could only say one thing, I think it's the modern evolutionary science catching up to the vision of evolution as something which can be a conscious process and which can lead to a global planetary organism, Gaia and the Amiga point. Right, right. Well, it's incredibly
0: exciting and and this work is really amazing in, in terms of its implications and ways for us to actually move forward. I mean, if we are undergoing some type of conscious evolutionary process, the first thing we would have to do is become conscious of the fact that we have a conscious evolution. Of course, one of the obstacles we face when discussing genetic, psychological, or cultural evolution in today's world, as it applies to humans, is the boogeyman of what's usually called social Darwinism. So if you apply evolutionary theory to human culture, you're a nasty social Darwinist, which means basically closet Nazi. So you spend an entire chapter debunking this idea. You show it's always a derogatory term. It completely misunderstands any genuine Darwinian theory. And it didn't even really become much used at all until around the 1940s, where if indeed you wanted to explain Hitler you could just say, oh, Nazis were social Darwinists, whereas Nazis actually referred to Darwinism as pseudoscientific fantasy. But social Darwinism really was a bit of a nasty myth. So you fully address and dispense with that issue, and then you say, now that we have dispelled the myth of social Darwinism as a boogeyman, we can begin to explore how an evolutionary worldview can function in a positive sense that consciously evolve our collective future. Wow.
1: Yeah, so I think it's important to say that the the justification of inequality has existed in a thousand different forms, before Darwin's theory, during Darwin's theory, and after it. And we really have to worry about those justifications. The idea that the stronger are, are in some sense morally superior is uh, a toxic idea. If That's what social Darwinism means, then we don't want that. But right. the idea that Darwin's theory per se actually led to an epidemic of toxic social policies, that is what is demonstrably false. And right. in the case of it, we have what's frankly a fascinating social history. I think we have to learn how to function as good social scientists and historians. And when we do, then we can see that Darwin's theory uh, basically meant different things to different people from the very beginning. Uh, for some, indeed, it uh, led to a sort of a might-is-right uh, worldview. Certainly people like Sir Francis Galton used it to justify his, uh, his um, ideas about eugenics. So did Ronald Fisher, the great population, geneticists, and yet right. at the same time for Darwin, said, uh, yeah, it's true that uh, humans breed true, but uh, we still don't want to use that because, uh, because our, our most distinctive trait as humans is sympathy. And uh, without sympathy, without altruism, uh, he said, selfish people don't cohere. And then Huxley, Darwin's bulldog, gave that really full-throated voice when he talked about eugenics as a pigeon fancier's polyby, and uh, and so on. So at the end of the day, as you say, we really should not be deterred by social Darwinism being used as a bogeyman to keep us out of the darkened woods of biology.
0: Right. And so one of the things that, well, your work in general, but certainly this book does, is attempt to start. First of all, getting a more accurate understanding of Darwin and then showing how those genuine ideas can indeed help us understand these other dimensions of reality, aspects of human reality, in a much more useful and productive way. And one of the things that you use for that and that you will often refer to as Darwin's toolkit was first brought up by an ethologist by the name of Nico Tinbergen. And you say, Tinberger called attention to four questions that must be addressed to fully understand any product of evolution. These questions are the most important tools in an evolutionary scientist's repertoire. First, what is the function of a given trait, if any? Second, what is the history of the trait as it evolved over multiple generations? Third, what is its physical mechanism? Fourth, how does the trait develop during the lifetime of the organism? Recognizing these as separate questions and studying them in conjunction with each other form the foundational concepts in Darwin's toolkit. So these really are central.
1: They sure are. And um, you've you stressed it yourself. Let me stress it also that uh, I think what's so gratifying about the evolutionary worldview is that simultaneously it's philosophically profound. It's asking the biggest questions that can be asked about life uh, and the human uh, condition. And secondly, it provides this immensely practical toolkit so that at the same time that we're asking the big questions, we can be solving the everyday problems of our lives. And those four questions are concerning function, history, mechanism, and development are so straightforward, uh, the main puzzle, I think, when readers first encounter it will be, yeah, okay, whatever, but uh, exactly <laughs> how does this function as a toolkit? And then, of course, subsequent chapters attempt to, to do justice to that question.
0: Uh, yeah, they do indeed, and uh, they really are fundamental. And I want to run this, uh, this other issue by this is sort of an additional way of looking at them, and the idea is that those four questions are would still be very important, but they apply to three major dimensions. And we find these dimensions basically in all sophisticated human languages. All languages have first, second, and third-person pronouns. And those do indeed represent three very real, very important dimensions. And Tinbergen's questions, I think, can and should be applied to all three dimensions, because evolution is occurring in all three. And I think that's one of the ways to look at what you're saying. So first person is defined as the person speaking. So it's the subject dimension, pronouns like I, me, mine, and that means psychological evolution, the evolution of the individual subject. Second person is defined as the person being spoken to So it's a you or a thou and a you plus an I is a we. That's an inner subjective dimension. That is culture, and that's cultural evolution. And then third person is said to be the person or thing being spoken about. So him, her, it, and and it is an object dimension. It's an actual objective thing, like a gene, and genes evolve, of course, that's standard genetic evolution. So, these are three central dimensions of reality, and evolution is occurring in all three, psychological evolution, cultural evolution, genetic evolution, first, second, third person, and all of Tinbergen's Bergen's questions, again, can and should be asked of, of all three of those dimensions, because evolution is occurring in all three of them. So, in other words, evolutionary theory is a third-person scientific study of first, second, and third-person realities. That makes a certain amount of sense to me.
1: Well, I think that um, there's some, a lot of interesting terrain to explore. I think there's some translations that are required. And uh, Now, I am moderately familiar with your own work, and when I started to learn about it. I was very taken with the four-quadrant schematic that you have called the cosmos. And uh, right now, were you? De- is that what you were describing, more or less? Uh, with first, second, third person?
0: Yeah, yeah, it does seem to be that, I mean, when I first stumbled on the idea, it, it became clear to me that these were dealing with Just some really fundamental distinctions that human beings make and that do seem, indeed, to reflect something like a real reality. And that turns out to be just a distinction between subject and object and then a distinction between an individual and a group. And if you take all of those, put them together, you get the inside and the outside of an individual and a collective. And those are often condensed into sort of three basic dimensions and which is just the interior of an individual and then the interior of a group. And then there's the exterior of an individual and a group. But because those are both exteriors or objective or third person, then they're often put together. But then you find these three dimensions show up in an enormous number of places. They're the good, the true and the beautiful, for example. Karl Popper recognized three worlds. Those were those the three dimensions. Jurgen Albert Mas, some people think he's the world's greatest living philosopher, he maintains that every single utterance a human being makes, positions it in relation to three dimensions. And those are the three dimensions. It's Buddha, Dharma, Sangha. It's I, we, it. So those ended up being sort of really, really kind of fundamental dimensions. And the more I looked at them, the more I could start to see just an enormous number of different types of approaches that people would take towards different issues, different problems, how they would actually conceive the world and study it. And those things just kept showing up. And so I just started pursuing that. And that's, yeah, one of the things they did was come up with a, a four quadrant notion. And it's not just the same as saying like, oh, biology, psychology, sociology. Those are sort of much more kind of complex fiddling but those rest on these fundamental distinctions. So it's just a generalization, and I'm not you know, necessarily saying that this is exactly what you would be talking about if you're talking about psychological evolution or cultural evolution or genetic evolution. But there's certainly a family of resemblance, and, um, and I think that is useful because it does allow us to start making... We have to be careful, of course, but it does allow us to start making um, various kinds of comparisons and and, uh, and move understanding forward in that general sense. And I certainly see that that appears to be some of the dimensions that you're very directly dealing with.
1: Yeah, I agree. I agree. And um, I think that uh, one thing to say about it is that um, all of what you just said is is firmly within the boundary of methodological naturalism, as I like to put it. We're not uh, really straying into any sort of supernaturalism or right. even things which, you know, might exist and be explained by natural causes, but are sort of currently out of the envelope of, of what we already know as natural causes. No, we're really actually centered very, very squarely into the, the laws of the universe that we, that we already know about. And right. the the, and so my understanding of those four quadrants, let me right. just lay it back to you, is that first of all, there's an individual and a collective dimension. That's the top and the bottom. Right. And then there's what I regard as sort of the life of the mind and the life of the external world. And, yeah, and it's also drawing attention to the actual
0: sort of perspective that we take. And one of the interesting things about that is you can really track that. I mean, a lot of developmental psychologists, for example, will define a major stage of human development. And by that, they usually mean something like human awareness or or human consciousness or the mind in in the very broadest sense. And some of those developmentalists will actually define a major level of development as the emergence of a new and extra perspective. So the young child, for example, six months old, can really only take a first person perspective. They really can't take the role of other. They can't take a second person perspective. And this was classically demonstrated by Piaget, for example. And it's always really interesting. The experiments with this are really interesting. If you take a ball, for example, it's colored red on one side and green on the other. And take a very young child, put that two-colored ball between you and the child. Turn it several times so they can see it's red and green, red and green. And then position the ball so the green side is facing the child. The red side is facing you. you. And then ask the child, what color are you seeing? And the child will say, green. And they say, okay, what color am I seeing? And the child will say, green. And so several years later, when they've actually develop things like concrete operational, they can actually take a different perspective. They can take the role of other. And then you ask them, what color are you seeing? They'll say green. What color am I seeing? They'll say red. They can actually see the world from your perspective, how it looks to your mind. They still can't take a third-person perspective. That will occur once in Piaget's system, for example, once formal operational cognition Emerges and then they can actually take a third person. That ends up being hypothetical deductive kinds of thinking. So it does tend to give rise to various sorts of actually scientific perspectives, hypothetical deductive reasoning, and so on. And then as developmentalists follow that out, Jane Lovinger, for example, they find that. Succeeding stages will add a fourth-person perspective, a fifth-person perspective. And we have empirical data going on up to around sixth- or seventh-person perspective. Suzanne Groyder continues to use those definitions in general. So when we say something like third-person perspective, it definitely means that you can start to see the world in an objective fashion. And so that's indeed what we would technically call the right-hand quadrants. But it also means you can look within. You can take a third-person perspective on your own thinking. And so human psychology actually becomes self-reflexive at that point. You actually do get introspective types of phenomena. So that's a third-person perspective being applied to our own interiors. And it's sort of kind of like a a cascading wall of, of mirrors you, know, you pointed out, and you sort of see an infinity of perspectives, but tracking those perspectives becomes really, really important and a very, very useful way of realizing just what we're doing in our approach to reality and how we can see it from different angles, from different perspectives. Mm-hmm. That does involve an increase, so to speak, in consciousness, an increase in the number of perspectives we can take. And that turns out to be unbelievably important. As we look at everything from uh, history um, to, to human development today.
1: Well, Ken, I think that uh, this is so very interesting, and it's a good example of where I think some updating is required. But the updating, when that updating takes place, is going to make things even more interesting and powerful than they are now. So I'm going to discuss. I'm going to. I'm going to. I'm going to suggest the possibility of some. Uh, updating required, but in a way that's going to lead to an even better uh, outcome. And we don't have the time. My dog's barking. Hold on, just a minute. Right. And so um, um, we can only start this process with this uh, interview. And I I would like to propose that uh, given our two capacities, uh, basically your large domain that you operate in and my large domain, that we should really find ways to do a deep dive into some of the topics that I'm about to Raise. I think that one of the fundamental issues at stake has to do with individualism and the individual person as a fundamental unit. That is really, for the last half century, has been the dominant tradition in economics and the social sciences. It's where Homo economicus comes from, it's where methodological individualism comes from. My own field of evolution took an individualistic turn with selfish genes and theory of individual selection in the middle of the 20th century. Right. we get Margaret Thatcher saying there's no such thing as society, only individuals and their, and their um, families. And of course, it seems to us natural that uh, of course, what else would be the fundamental unit than the individual? And yet you only have to go back a century and you find all sorts of thinkers, actually even most thinkers, talking about society as the organism and, and uh, uh, social facts that cannot be reduced to biological or even psychological facts. We have Durkheim and, and his kind. So um, what we have now, I think, with one of the main imports of multi-level selection theory is that there's a neglected unit, and that neglected unit is the small group, the small functionally oriented group. It was the hunter-gatherer tribe that was our only social environment for most of our history. And not only was it a small group, but it was a small and highly cooperative group. So that if there was only one constant in the human ancestral environment, it was to be a member of a small and for the most part, highly cooperative group. So that is the organism and the individual functions in that context. If you remove that individual from the small group, you get many of the pathologies that we see today of loneliness and isolation and all of its mental and physical sequelae. And as you know, I have a chapter in, uh, in my book in which I relate the wonderful work of Jim Cohen on, uh, on basically how our brains have evolved to seamlessly integrate our personal resources and our social resources as we make our Trade-off uh, a decision. So there's a there, there's a I think something very new there that needs to be. Um, that need- and, and is that what you mean by updating? That's part of the updating. And so against that background, you you cited some experiments, uh, old and new, on on human development. We have the uh, pioneers such as Piaget and Kohlberg with his stages of. Um, moral developments, but now we know, and I think you're, you are familiar with this research, that um, even at the youngest age, actually infants are capable of certain kinds of perspective taking and even certain kinds of moral decisions. So for example, one experiment that I, I remember is that um, if an adult, there's three toys, an adult has played with two of the toys with a very small infant, And then uh, he comes in, and so there's two familiar toys. There's two toys that are familiar to the adult, one toy that is unfamiliar to the adult. All three toys are familiar to the infant. The adult comes in, gestures broadly towards the three toys, and the infant gives the novel toy to the adult. And so this is a degree of perspective taking that we would, that previously was thought only to develop at some later age, let's say four, six, eight, but now it turns out is, is uh, exists earlier. And why not? I mean, why were we thinking in the first place that the, that the, that the infant would be born an individualist and then only later would learn such things as empathy and, and the, and the instincts required for cooperation. Why shouldn't those be present at, birth? What's the theoretical warrant for thinking that some kind of psychological individualism comes before some kind of psychological groupism?
0: Well, yeah, and one of the main points that um, I make with integral theory is that all four quadrants are always simultaneously arising, and I maintain that that goes all the way back uh, even to things like atoms and molecules, but one of the things that we're dealing with when we do look at the development of human capacities is, it's certainly the case that a whole lot of qualities, capacities, traits that some early developmentalists thought just didn't exist at earlier stages but came into being, not only are we finding that there are a fair number of those that happen at an early period in a human being's development, but we're also pushing back and and finding a lot of those kinds of what would broadly be called, let's say, moral sensibilities in animals, and, and we're finding those, and that's not a surprise. What is still true about the developmental unfolding is just the, the actual degree, the actual amount of these things that can be displayed. And nobody is denying that, for example, something like somebody like Moh- Mohandas Gandhi could have more of a moral sensibility than a six-month-old child could. That's not in dispute. So the question isn't whether certain emergent qualities occur in development, because they certainly do. I mean, a a two-year-old child is not going to do differential calculus for you, nor be a brain surgeon, nor a concert pianist. These things, there really are important factors that do emerge in developmental theory. And it's still the case that you can find, for example, even if you track things like conformity or just a strict, what Colbert would call law and order emergent, doesn't mean that some of those don't exist earlier, doesn't mean that some of them don't exist later. But they really are. You can actually track the unfolding of, of a lot of these qualities. And in many cases, what you do find is simply some of these traits, no matter how early, they they can exist, some of them do show an increase in the amount or the degree or the quality that can occur. And that's an important fact. It's it's important in your work as well because even if we, and this is a a topic that I think we're going to be talking about a fair amount in today's discussion, even if you look at how human beings themselves have evolved, and one of the main points that you make frequently is that the primary, or even what you call the primacy, of humans evolving in small group cooperatives. And you point out there are that sort of good news, bad news. The good news is that means we really are fundamentally a group cooperative entity, absolutely. But you also point out the downside of that, which is, and therefore we tend to treat people that aren't part of our group with distrust. And indeed that can happen, and that can get very, very ugly. That can give us wars and torture and murder. And those are very real distinctions. And so that's one of the problems that we have to face with evolution, is that it's accustomed us, so to speak, to small group cooperation and other group distrust. That's a problem. And so that's where we also see developmental psychology coming into play and having some very important things to add. So one of the problems being, of course, that some of the issues that we face in today's world aren't just how we need to cooperate in small groups, but how to get small groups to cooperate with other small groups. That wasn't something that evolution primarily bred us
1: for. And
0: so that's an issue.
1: Right. And uh, so the, um, as I put into my book, evolution is both the problem and the solution. And uh, evolution does not make everything nice. Often it results in behaviors that are good for me, not you, us, not them, and good for the short term, but not the... Exactly.
0: And that's what we're coming on. I want to just get right into that, because as you say, you do have, there is a chapter on the problem of goodness. And so we can just get right into that. This was excerpted from the full two and a half hour discussion, which you can find on our premium podcast over at integrallife.com.